This is the fourth Sunday of Lent. Only two Sundays left. And uh, so it's coming right down to it, which is kind of amazing. As we've been going through Lent, what we've been trying to do is to reimagine Lent. You know, for those of us who grew up with Lent, grew up in liturgical churches, Lent was a, kind of a dark time. It was just very somber, and it was all about denial. It was about giving things up. And so as a kid, I remember, you know, I'd give up candy bars or give up whatever it was that, that uh, I really liked, and it always felt like a burden. It felt like a sacrifice. And so what we're trying to do is take this notion of Lent and turn it around. So we're doing the same sort of thing. We're still practicing some self-denial, I suppose, but we're clearing out distractions. We're clearing out things that take us away from the connection with the truth that is always there, but we're not always aware of it because we're so caught up in all the details, all the noise, all the stuff. And so here it is that we're trying to make Lent a positive thing. We're affirmatively letting go of things in order to clear a space that will allow us to be able, through silence and solitude, create that inner stillness that allows us to be able to really connect with our God, whose native language is silence. He's always speaking silence. We need to learn that language as well. Last week, we brought up, I brought up, you didn't bring it up, I brought it up. I brought up the the movie Chariots of Fire and uh, it was a movie that I connected with just by randomly flipping channels at the time. And um, it's a story of two runners uh, preparing for the 1924 Olympics. And uh, one of them is a British Jew who is driven to succeed. He's using his running as a weapon because of the prejudice that he has faced as a Jew in Britain in the early 20th century, which you can imagine was considerable, especially going to the elite colleges that he was going to. But he's angry. He's driven. He's a gritted teeth, closed fist kind of runner and cannot stand to lose. And then you have Eric Little, who is a Scotsman Christian, and um, he has this wonderful moment with his sister. He is born of missionaries, Chinese missionaries, actually Scots missionaries to China. And um, his sister was really upset with him for spending so much time running because it was taking away from his preparation as a missionary. And he has this one conversation with her and he says, hey, I believe that God made me for a purpose. And the purpose is China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that's the difference. He feels God's pleasure when he runs. He is lost and abandoned to the process. So much so that even as he is preparing to get on the blocks for his major heat in the, in the Olympics, he's just walking up and down with his sport coat on and greeting everyone and wishing them luck, his competitors on the, on the track. And they're looking at him like he grew horns or something. But he was able to do that because he feels God's pleasure when he runs. And the, and the connection that we are making as we compare and contrast these two personalities, these two runners is that Eric Little was able to see through the task at hand to the deeper purpose. In other words, he saw the task within the task. All of us, all our lives, we're doing things. We have things on our agenda. We have careers. We have things that we're striving for. We have things that we work really hard for to be good at. And yet all of that is really meaningless when it comes right down to it. Everything we physically do in this life ultimately is meaningless because we leave it behind. But there's a task within the task. It doesn't mean that we completely disregard all the things that we do in life. 
We still address ourselves to them. We still work hard and we strive for excellence. But at the same time we're doing that, we're realizing there's a task beneath that task. There are principles that we are following without even knowing it as we do the things that we do on the surface. And Little was able to see that and feel God's pleasure when he ran and didn't just run to win. And therein lies all the difference. There's the balance between the things that we strive to do and the really deep reason that we're here breathing as human beings. And so the question became, how do you do that? How do we become people that are so balanced that we can both work hard and also see beneath the work and not become identified or defined by it? And here's where I think, again, the liturgy comes to our rescue, you know? I probably should have stayed liturgical my whole life because I love the liturgy so much. And the, and the symbolism, the deep symbolism of 2,000 years of developing this thing, what, what it can hand to us. We're approaching Holy Week. Holy Week begins Sunday after next with Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday begins Holy Week. Actually, there sort of is a Lazarus Saturday, but we're not going to go there. You know. Lazarus Saturday is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. So you've got... You've got Eight days, basically, from, from Saturday to Sunday. And you've got, um, from Sunday to Sunday, you've got eight days. And you've got a name for each holy day. And you've got scripture passages that traditionally have been attached to each one of those days that gives them their name. But when we take a look at those, there really is a, um, a message. There is a process, a way of living life that, that is unmistakable. And so, for instance, Palm Sunday... Palm Sunday is attached to the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All right? He's been told not to go. Things are too hot. He goes anyway, and he comes in riding on a donkey. And donkey is a symbol of peace. The horse would be the symbol of war. And everybody who is cheering for him or standing there with their arms crossed because they are afraid of him and afraid of where he is taking the country and, and what he's doing to their power base is looking at Jesus from a different point of view. The message in the story of the triumphal entry, and we'll talk more about it on Palm Sunday, is our ability to be aware of the time of our visitation. We are aware that Jesus is riding into our lives, and we can see Jesus for who he really is, not just what our agenda attaches to him, not just what our expectations attach to him. To see Jesus as he is, to be aware of the moment, the hour of our visitation. And then there's Fig Monday. Fig Monday, yeah. There's two stories that are attached to there. One of them is the cleansing of the temple, and the other is the cursing of the fig tree, from which it gets its name. And that cursing of the fig tree business, what's going on there? That's really weird. Why would Jesus curse a poor tree, especially one that didn't produce fruit because it wasn't the season for the fruit? It's not the tree's fault, right? To understand the cursing of the fig tree, we have to connect it with the story of the cleansing of the temple to which it's attached. When things are right next to each other, take a look at the connection between them. You know, the authors of the, of the Gospels are very specific about the order and where they place things because the meaning is going to be implicit. The cleansing of the temple is that from the outside, the temple, which is the symbol of all of, of Israel's uh, religious life, and its sanctity and its connection with its God from the outside looks beautiful, pristine, white, you know, majestic. Inside, it has become a den of thieves and robbers. And so Jesus is unmasking the true state 
the corruption and the, and the depths to which the system has sunk. When he looks at the fig tree from a far way off, it looks green and verdant and it looks like it's full of fruit. And when he gets up close, there's nothing there to sustain him. The cursing of the fig tree is really, again, Jesus' unmasking of the true withered state. The fig tree from the prophets on was a symbol of Israel itself. So we have two symbols of Israel, temple and fig tree, both in a withered and barren state, not able to sustain the life of its people. And so the message to us is, can we see through the distractions? Can we see through the deceptions? Can we see through the surface areas of our life to what's really nourishing underneath? Then you have Holy Tuesday. Holy Tuesday is a story of the the ten virgins, you know. Really, it's a story of the ten bridesmaids, if you want. They were um, young, unmarried girls who were attending to a bride. And there's five foolish and there's five, you know, prudent. But this is a story of watchfulness and readiness. To be able to balance the anticipation for a future that is yet unrealized with complete immersion in what's going on right in front of us in a watchful and ready state. Do you see how each one of these days is giving us a principle by which we can live in a much more aware and connected way? Spy Wednesday, Spy Wednesday. Judas is a star of Spy Wednesday. The the word spy comes from his conspiracy with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus and to turn him over to them. But it's juxtaposed with another story, which is a story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet with the perfume and Judas objecting because the money should have gone to the poor. And so here we see this disconnect between macro issues and micro intimacy. Can we balance the two of those as well? We're trying to balance the now with the there then. We're trying to balance the macro issues, the big issues, with the intimate issues and realizing if we don't have a handle on the intimacy and the love, then anything we do in the macro is not going to matter. Monday Thursday, another strange name. It comes from Jesus. The stories are come from the Last Supper and from the Garden of Gethsemane. So we are right up against the, the crucifixion on Good Friday. And if you think about it, Jesus gives a new commandment, mandatum novum, dovobis in in, uh, Latin, a new commandment I give you. When you take mandatum and you parse it into Old English a thousand years later, it becomes mandi. So mandi means the commandment, and that's where the name comes from. But what we're talking about here in the Last Supper, Jesus institutes the Eucharist. He gives a new commandment, which is love. He tells his disciples they're going to know you that you, and know you and know that you're my followers by your love and not by anything else. He washes their feet. Everything is about connection, about oneness. The Eucharist, as we always rehearse every time we have Eucharist, is taking into ourselves everything that Jesus is and everything that animates him. To become so one and connected that we're actually assimilating him and becoming animated by the same things he's animated by. And when he washes his disciples' feet, he's showing them, this is what it looks like when you're one with me. It's not spectacular. It's not full of power and glory as you and the world typically think of this. It's being a servant. It's being willing to do the most menial tasks out of love and care and connection for whoever is in your path at the time. And then, of course, there's Good Friday, the crucifixion. 
And this is a complete surrender. This is the laying down of Jesus' life for his friends, showing us the, the extent, the depths to which perfect love will go in an imperfect world. Holy Saturday is Jesus in the tomb. It's called the Great Sabbath by the Eastern churches. There are no services in any liturgical church on Holy Saturday. The cross is covered in purple, and any of the other items of the, of the altar are covered in purple, and everything is at rest. And this is Jesus at rest. And then, of course, right before the descent, right before the ascent into Easter Sunday, which, of course, is the resurrection, new life, rebirth, everything starting anew. Nothing lost. Nothing is ever lost. It only changes form. Do you see how, and, and I know I went past that fast and we had no visual aids, so how many of you can recite what I just said, right? On Easter, on Holy Week, we, I will send out, we will send out uh, emails, daily devotionals um, for each one of those days that will reiterate in much more detail what I was just encapsulating for you. And if you're not on our mailing list, get on our emailing list so that you can get those because it's really great every day of Holy Week to be able to read those and lock into what it is we're doing liturgically on that day. And a reminder how we're supposed to be living life. Every one of those days gives us a way of living life. So if we're looking toward being able to do what Eric Little was able to do, to be able to balance the task and the task within the task, to be able to balance what you're striving for in the future, but still being able to feel God's pleasure as you run right here and right now, there are two days that I want to highlight this morning, and that's Tuesday and Wednesday. Holy Tuesday and Spy Wednesday, because they both form, in my mind, a kind of block of, of balancing, all right? And uh, I will need my glasses and the words. And I know Brandon is going to put them up there for you. But let's take a look at Holy Tuesday. Let's take a look at the scripture that, that uh, has been attached to Holy Tuesday for at least a thousand years. It's at Matthew 25, at least the, the, the gospel we're going to read. It's Matthew 25, starting right at verse 1. And here's Jesus then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. And this word here is, means a young maiden, means an unmarried girl uh, who was typically a virgin. But it can mean all of those things. These were the girls that were the friends of the bride and were the bridesmaids. So these would be girls like 12, 13 years old. They'd be really young, just girl, kids in our eyes. Um, but of marryable, marryable age, is that correct? Thank you, counselor. You've got to have a lawyer to come up with the right word, right? Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. 
Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Harsh, huh? Isn't that kind of harsh? What are we going to do with this? What's Jesus talking about here? What's going on? We talked about the fact that this is all about watchfulness and readiness, but this story, this parable, can't be understood until it is placed into the context of the Jewish wedding ceremony. That's everything. The Jewish wedding ceremony, once you know it, you will see it everywhere in Scripture. This was, this was a ceremony that pretty much ordered life in the villages and in the tribes. It was so deeply embedded into their culture. It was so much a part of who they were that they saw it operating on all levels. They, the Israelites saw Israel as the bride of Yahweh. The early church saw the church as the bride of Christ because of understanding the dynamic of this wedding ceremony. Now, the Jewish wedding ceremony from ancient times was in two parts. And the first part was called the Kedushin, and the second part was called the Nisuin. The Kedushin was the betrothal, all right? And the Nisuin was the actual wedding ceremony itself. And those two were separated, sometimes by as much as two years, but at least separated by six to 12 months, typically. And so why would they do that? Why would they have their, their betrothal? And by the way, once you are betrothed, you're as good as married. You don't get out of it just because you're engaged. All right? Once you're betrothed, it's legal, counselor. It's legal. You're going to need a divorce to get out of the betrothal, even though it hasn't been consummated yet as, as a marriage, and the wedding hasn't taken place yet and won't for some time. But why is there a gap between the betrothal and the nisuin, the, the wedding? You know, the best explanation I heard is that before DNA testing, how could you tell if the first child that was born to you was actually yours? How would you know if your bride was actually pure? This waiting period was what allowed that to take place. Once the girl was, was betrothed, then she was, you know, she was under the microscope. And she was watched. And part of the family's job was to keep her pure. This was a way of ensuring that. Is that the only reason? I don't know. It's just the best reason that I could find. Because otherwise it's, it's kind of strange. But it sets a lot of things up. The marriages were arranged. Usually bride and groom didn't even meet each other until the day of their betrothal, often. And the way that it would work is that the fathers of the bride and the groom would arrange the marriage, and then the father of the groom would send the groom to the bride's house to uh, enact the betrothal ceremony, the kedushin. And he would send him there with several things. He would send him with a, a ketubah, a ketubah, 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 which was a written contract for the marriage. And it spelled out everything that the groom was responsible for and everything that the bride was responsible for. He sent them with a mahar, which was a dowry. It was a gift. And so the, the groom would go with these items, and there was also wine and the cup. And he would go to the house of the, uh, the father of the bride, and he would present the contract, he would present the dowry, and he would make a tenayim, which was a promise to return. And they would have a ceremony, they would drink one cup together, and they wouldn't drink the second cup until the Nisuin, the actual wedding ceremony. And that would seal the betrothal. 
To this day, Jews today, you know, they put the two together. They don't have the, the gap between. But they still, the ketubah is still a very important part of a Jewish wedding. It's a very elaborate document that professional, you know, um, calligraphers will, will produce for them and they hang it on the wall of their homes. It's a beautiful thing, you know. And they can put their, they can mess with it now and put their own vows up there or do whatever they want. But in this day, it was a very formal thing. And then with the Tenayim, with the promise to return, the groom leaves, and he goes back to his father's house. And his task there is to build the Hadar, which is the, um, the actual mansion or the add-on to the father's house where his, he and his bride and his family are going to live because it was only the, the girls that moved. They would go to the father's house. And nobody knew when he was going to come back. In fact, the groom didn't even know when he was going to come back because it was the father who had final say when the construction was complete and he was ready to come back. And when he did, it was a big game that they would play. He would come in the middle of the night and they would blow a shofar, which was a ram's horn. In fact, I was going to bring... Kathleen gave us a ram's horn from from Israel that when she came back, and I was going to have it here, and I was going to blow it for you, and I forgot, of course. But, But they would blow the shofar at the outskirts of town and everybody would run. And the bridesmaids would run with their lamps and they would form uh, a lighted trail from the outskirts of town to the bride's house with their lamps. And uh, the, bride, the groom would come down with his entourage. The father of the bride would ceremonially turn his head as if he's not looking. And they would snatch the bride up. And the nisuin literally means lifting up. And they would put her, that's why they put you on a seat and carry you around the room in a Jewish wedding. This is a reenactment of actually the litter that they would put the bride on and carry her all the way back to the father's house where they would party for seven straight days. And that would be the wedding ceremony. They'd drink the second cup and everything would be consummated. And they would settle down to live their life in the father's estate. When you think of it that way, when you see this, the bride and the bridesmaids are living in this state between the betrothal and the wedding. This is the way that the Jews saw themselves as living between the betrothal and the wedding. They were betrothed to their God. They were under contract. The contract was a Torah. The contract was a law. They couldn't break it. And yet, it still wasn't consummated yet. There was something coming, something wonderful, but something that they couldn't really anticipate. How were they supposed to live? How was that bride, that 12 or 13-year-old girl, supposed to live? Knowing that her husband, this groom, this person that she didn't even know, could come at any moment, tonight, and take her away from everything that she knew, everyone that she loved. How do you manage that sort of breathless period of time. This is where the balance comes in. And this is what Jesus is talking about. To be watchful and ready because at any moment the groom can return. At any moment this life can be consummated for us. But at the same time, look around. What you have here is precious. What you have here you may not see again in this particular way. A bride didn't know if she'd see her family of origin again if her husband lived far away or maybe just at intervals. Life as she knew it was going to end. The anticipation, the excitement for the new life was great, but just as great was her determination to look sideways at the people that she was with and to suck every moment, the life out of every moment, and be completely present. This is what Jesus is talking about. And remember, the story of the ten virgins is usually told or interpreted in the context of eschatology, which is end times, okay, final judgment. This is not what this is about. 
Jesus says right at the beginning, you know, the kingdom of heaven can be comparable to ten virgins. He's couching it and makes the context kingdom, which we've said over and over again. It's always here and now. It is the immediate state of being that we can enter into or not. And so, if we are not watchful, if we are not ready, if we are not living our lives with this really intense awareness of everything that's around us and going on, then God doesn't know us, literally. The doors are shut to us, literally, right here, right now, in this moment. Not forever. God doesn't throw away the key. But we are not experiencing kingdom right now because we are not ready for it. We are not prepared for it. We are not balancing our lives in such a way. Do you see how that works? See what Jesus is trying to say? Can we do that? Can we not flop down to one side or another that we're so focused on heaven? What's what's that line? So heavenly minded that you know earthly good? Isn't that the one? Yeah. Can we do that? Can we not be so focused on heaven that we're really not present here? Conversely, that we're not so distracted and, and spun around by what's going on here that we can't see the deeper spiritual truth that is the task within the task. Can we do both at the same time? That is the state of the Jewish bride. That is the state of Israel idealized. And that was what the church was supposed to be experiencing as well. Now let's take a look at Spy Wednesday and see what that has for us. At Luke 22, Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. All right, what is it with Judas anyway? Have you ever wondered about Judas? Is he just like a tool? I mean, what's, what's the idea here? What's, if, if everything had to happen the way that it did, if Jesus needed to be crucified in order to enact the redemptive you know, mechanics, then... Did Judas really have a choice? (laughs) And if he didn't have a choice, is it really a sin? I mean, isn't a definition of a sin that it has to be a free choice that you make? Definition of love is it has to be a free choice, so why not a sin? So what is it about Judas? How can we understand Judas and what's going on here? Now, John is going to tell us in the next story that he was a thief, and and so and here he's going to betray Jesus for money. So okay, maybe he had that character flaw. But why did Jesus choose him in the first place? Why would he? And why did Judas want to follow him? If he wanted money, he was really barking up the wrong tree with Jesus. Jesus wasn't about that. You know, what would make Judas want to follow Jesus? You know, the best way to probably understand Judas, and we don't know for sure, how can we? What we've got is just these few lines in the New Testament. But most likely, if Judas wasn't a zealot, he was of that mindset. Who are the zealots? The zealots were the group that wanted to throw the Romans out. They were the ones who believed that 
Israel was supposed to be a sovereign nation, and this last 400 years of constant occupation from foreign powers had to end. And it was going to end with the Romans, and they were going to be the generation to end it. They were the terrorists of their day. They were the guerrillas of their day. They were the ones that were, were um, you know, performing assassinations and starting riots, anything that they could do to destabilize Roman power. And they were looking for the Messiah who was going to come, who was promised for generations of prophets, who was going to come in that military power, come in that political power, was going to be the one who was going to foment the revolution and throw the Romans out and reestablish a sovereign Israel. Jesus was looking like that Messiah. Many believed that he was that Messiah. He was doing the works that were prophesied by the prophets that the Messiah would do. What he wasn't doing was taking on any political power. What he wasn't doing was was working toward any kind of violence. What he wasn't doing was hating the Romans. He wasn't doing things right. But at the beginning, it's quite possible that Judas would have attached himself to Jesus because he believed he was the one. And he wanted to be there and help Jesus to fulfill his mission as Mashiach and to throw the Romans out and then, of course, be at the right hand of power You know, when the new kingdom was established. But he was getting more and more disillusioned as the years went by, as time went on, because Jesus wasn't picking up the mantle. He wasn't doing what the Mashiach should have been doing, according to Judas's thinking. Maybe, to put the best possible spin on Judas, he thought... If he goaded Jesus, if he put Jesus in a position where his back was completely against the wall, maybe he would then do what he was supposed to do. So by betraying him, by putting him in that position, he would finally call his army together and start the revolution. Is that for sure? I don't know. But Judas is a really complex character. One of the most interesting characters in the New Testament I'm sure that's why Weber and Rice chose him to be, you know, one of the leads in Jesus Christ Superstar because there's that conflict. We don't really know the mystery of, of why he does what he does, the remorse he feels afterwards, the suicide. Everything about G- Judas is so interesting. But the story here on Spy Wednesday is really the contrast between Judas and Mary. This is where we start to see what's going on here. Look at John 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, because that's what Martha does, right? Martha serves. And Mary was playing again. (laughs) But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Now, that's another strange story, isn't it? Because it sounds like Judas really has the high ground here, doesn't he? Don't waste this stuff. You're pouring this out on the floor. Who could we support with this kind of money? Jesus, kind of cavalierly, kind of callously, you're always going to have the poor with you? 
but you're not always going to have me. Notice what's happening here. In both stories, Judas is completely immersed in the macro issues. He's all about social justice. He's all about the big issues. If he's a zealot, he's all about nationalism. He's all about restoring the sovereignty of his nation. Whereas Mary is just about the intimate connection with her friend. Mary has fallen in love with who Jesus is. And she's completely focused on the micro, every little bit. And what Jesus, Jesus' retort to Judas is to change the context. You're always going to have the poor with you. These macro issues will persist. But you're not always going to have me. You're not going to have me here to have this kind of relationship with, to have this one-on-one friendship with. Jesus is calling them again to balance. Just as the virgins are supposed to balance between the here-now experience and the anticipation of a new life, here we have the balance between the macro issues that we will always have to deal with, the outward task, right? And the task within the task, which is the intimacy of the love that we can have between us and our God and us and each other. I think Tuesday and Wednesday of Holy Week are trying to show us that this balance is possible, that we can really do this, we can put this together, that even as we work hard for whatever issues and whatever tasks or careers that we have developed for ourselves, if we haven't fallen in love on a micro level, on an intimate level, then we'll never be fulfilling our purpose as human beings. In other words, As we work, whatever it is that we're doing, we need still to be able to feel God's pleasure as we run, as we work, as we do what we do. And this is what the liturgy is trying to show us by putting these scriptures together, these Holy Week scriptures, the scriptures and the stories of Jesus' passion together in such a beautiful way to lay out for us this balance. This is what it's all about. All such time that we spend in the macro issues, in the there-then issues, are important, but they're also meaningless unless they're infused with the intimacy and the connection of the task within the task. And this is what Jesus is trying to show us over and over again. Can we do this? And the answer is yes, we can. But it starts with awareness. It starts with first understanding there is a task within the task. And clearing the space of Lent is what can make us sensitive to everything that is really important around us. So as we continue with the last couple of weeks of Lent, can we be more and more sensitive to exactly what's going on around us? And Jesus says resoundingly, yes, these things you see me do, you can do, and greater things than these. Let's pray. Father, once again, gratitude is our only response. Thank you for our holy scriptures. Thank you for the church that has guarded them as imperfectly as it's done it. Thank you for the church that's guarded them and ordered them and presented them to us in a way that can clearly show us at times the things that we need to know. 
but help us to internalize those, to take them from the outside and make them our own, to act on them, to live them, to breathe them, to allow them to be written on our hearts so that they are ours and not just something we heard someone say once. We want to live these things, Lord. We want to make them ours in a way that we know, that we know, that we know you and that we know that we know that you know us, that the doors are open, that we are on time for the feast, that we have a place at the table with you always so that we can drop the fear and just feel your pleasure as we run wherever we go and whatever we do. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your connection and your care. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.